no matter where we face, we must face the moment of truth, baby. And we're back for another episode of the Stereo Bros Podcast. It's your boy, PNL. It's Jazzy. What's up? And we're here with a special guest all the way from the land that us Brooklyn folk do not really go to. But we got to make exceptions for exceptional people. I got to shout out the homie Cindy from Zero Base Budget that was on our financial uh, series last year. She sent reinforcements by way of John Sanchez. Why don't you tell the folks who you are? Yeah, my name's, thanks you, thank you for having me. Um, my name is John Sanchez. I'm the district manager of Bronx Community Board 6, and I'm also a candidate for city council in the 15th council district in the central Bronx. There you go. So, again, exceptional people, you got to make exceptions. Yeah, I know we have you on the Bronx slander. However, for the sake of this episode, We'll lighten it up a little bit. And John and Cindy are, you know, great friends in, in real life, outside of the podcast and on the podcast. So we brought them up here today because we're very big on entertainment and a part of that is civic engagement. And um, right now there's a lot happening in the world, so it's important to be involved locally and nationally with all these elections coming up. But here in New York City, you know, city council is super important so john is here to uh one educate you guys on what he's doing and why he's running but he's also going to entertain y'all a little bit too and and tell y'all about his experiences in the bronx and that kind of stuff so to kick it off john talk to us about your your background you know your history growing up in the bronx and what got you into politics yeah well i'm a lifelong bronx resident um, I, I grew up on one six. Say that again. You said lifelong Bronx resident, so I was just saying sorry because that must have been like dramatic. No, it was actually amazing. Uh, <laughs> pressure makes diamonds. So <laughs> um, I grew up on one sixty seventh and Walton. Then I moved to one eighty fourth and Park, which is like the Central Bronx. Then I lived in Parkchester, um, but now I'm back in Belmont. I'm on one eighty fourth and Hoffman near uh, Arthur Avenue, which is a uh, great neighborhood. And growing up in the Bronx, I mean, I, I'm, a cat, I'm a product of Catholic school. So I went to Catholic school from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade because during the early 90s, there were no charter schools. There were no other options. And luckily, I was a only child, so my parents could pay for me to go, through, go have a good education. Um, I went to Cardinal Spelman High School, and then that pretty much paved the way for me to go to NYU Stern, graduated from NYU Stern, did some government consulting in DC, didn't like that, came back to the Bronx. I was a personal trainer for about a year and a half. Uh, that was good for a minute, but then I wanted to get involved in government. I want to get involved in improving my neighborhood and having a stake in what happens in that neighborhood. So I volunteered on a campaign, no political experience. I volunteered for a state assembly candidate. His name is Michael Blake and he won. 
And I became his deputy chief of staff without even doing an interview. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm the deputy chief of staff and I'm managing the biggest internship class in the state assembly. We had about 20 interns when I was there and I recruited and interviewed and placed all of them. And that was a good experience, but the state assembly doesn't pay much. I was making minimum wage, probably less than minimum wage if you divided it by all the hours I was working. So with that said, I need to get paid. So I got a new job working with a a charter school advocacy group. That was good. And then about a few months later, district manager position opened up at Community Board 6. I went through two rounds of interviews. And the past four years, I've been at Community Board 6. And it's the longest I've held a job. But it's also been a fun time and doing a lot of the same things that a city council member would do, just serving my neighborhood. That's that's lit. And I was definitely the humble brag of like, yeah, and why you serve. (laughs) <laughs> like sometimes you got to do that. You got to tell them who you are. You got to let your nuts hang. So I ain't mad at that. I mean, you guys got schools up there, though. You got you got uh, Riverdale. You got Bronx Science. Um, well, 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 the thing that we're going to get into is that there are parts of our city which are very different from the rest, um, and Riverdale is uh, an exception to most of the schools in the Bronx similar to how I'd compare Park Slope schools are probably different than East New York schools. Correct. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very, that's the perfect analogy. Um, shout out to East New York. There's good people on both sides. Mm-hmm. Park Slope as well. They have tremendous burgers and parks and farmer's markets. Um, no, but that's, that's dope. And that's, that's uh, a really good, uh, baseline background for, you know, who you are and and I don't I don't think I've ever said this on a podcast before, but I'll say it now. My father lived in the Bronx for a little while on um 168th and Finley. And oh, it's very close to where yeah, I used to live. And he also lived on like 154th or like somewhere where it was mad dark. I remember like it was um but the Philly Avenue house that he lived in was across street from a school, and it was like right by like that Joker Bridge, I think. I, I, I think it was by that Joker Bridge. But um, yeah, the Bronx was interesting. Going to visit him up there and taking the D train to what was that, one sixty seventh, and then yeah, like that was my train stop. Yeah, like walking all the way down. Um, but sorry for another day. I'm happy he moved out of there. Um. What do you miss the most about old or like pre-bike lane New York City? I mean, it could be the Bronx too, right? But it's like you grew up in the Bronx and as much of a bad rap as the Bronx gets, you guys do have like a pretty unique history as well, right? In terms of like Little Italy up there and, you know, that kind of stuff too. But like, how do you think the changes in the city have impacted the Bronx what do you miss about like Bronx before the developers kind of swooped in and started this, this change? Well, I'd say the Bronx is unique compared to an area like Brooklyn where we, we still have time to have development that's community led. We don't have a bunch of luxury condos coming into the Bronx right now. It still remains the poorest borough. So there's still a lot of challenges we have before we even get to the state of potential gentrification. Mm -hmm. Now there are some luxury developments, but they're closer to the southern part of the Bronx, and that's closer to Manhattan. Where I I work, 
I'm a 20 minute walk from the train. So developers aren't looking at my area right now. I don't have that proximity to Manhattan. What do I miss about New York City? I'll just be talking general terms. What do I miss about New York City um, pre-bike lane? I mean, we do need bike lanes, but we'll get into that. <laughs> I'd say simple things like being able to go to City Hall Park without having to go through security, having it barricaded off. I'd say going with my dad to Borders in the World Trade Center building and just reading magazines all day. Um, I miss going to a, a regular Nick game or Yankee game when it was affordable and you could actually <laughs> have a good time. Um, I miss uh, going to Coney Island where you didn't have to have a bunch of money, but you could still have a good time. That was my summer excursion. We didn't go on vacation out of state. My summer excursion was Coney Island. Um, so that was fun. And then also, what do I miss about New York? I mean, 10, 20 years ago, it was still, still had that affordability. It still was a place where a family like mine, mom and dad, they could make less than $35,000, still afford rent, still put me through Catholic school, and still make ends meet. Um, if my parents would have had me five years ago, they probably wouldn't have been able to afford Catholic school. Um, they probably would have had trouble paying the rent. Um, we probably would have had to move out of New York City. Mm. That's real. And Coney Island, I went there recently. It's, <laughs> I don't think it's unaffordable. And Jazzy, you can tell me if you feel differently if you've been there recently. But I feel like I went there and we had like Nathan's. I don't know if, like, I almost don't even remember what the price used to be. I just was like, let me get like, this was maybe 2019 BC before Corona. So mm -hmm. at the time it was still okay to eat like hot dogs, right? Like now you get caught as a man eating a hot dog, you eating a glizzy, like it's, it's different now, but <laughs> I think it might've been, damn, what did I pay for like two or three hot dogs and like some, some cheese fries that might've been like 15, 16, like something insane. And I was just like, here, like I didn't think, like I didn't think about the price. I don't remember what it cost as a kid. I just remember as a kid in Coney Island, I used to always beg for like all like the fried food, like on on Surf Avenue, like mm -hmm. the fried clams, like the fried like shrimp. I would always beg for that. <laughs> my, mom, my mom would be like, "Why do you like that food looks disgusting?" I'm like, "But I just want it. I want it." And I would eat it and then be like, "Oh, this shit is so disgusting!" But I couldn't tell her that. I had to just like. Keep eating it. So no, I definitely agree with the uh, with the change in pricing. And I think the Coney Island rides back then used to be like a dollar a ride, and that was something like for uh, a card. It might be like you get five rides for like twenty five. Like it's almost like four or five times more expensive than what it was uh, growing up. And I didn't realize that the Bronx hasn't quite been fully because every time I see the news, it's like they're rezoning the waterfront mm -hmm. or by Yankee Stadium, they built some high rises or something like that. Yeah. But it makes sense that that stuff is more like Southern Bronx and, and yes. not your location, right? Exactly. Another thing I forgot about New York City, I, I got to mention that I miss. Um, it still goes on, but it's not the same. Going to Rucker Park and watching 
the games where you could see NBA players play against the streetball players free. No one had a camera out. We were just enjoying the games. I remember going on when I was 12, 13, just wait in line and go watch the game and be out all night and then go back home to the Bronx. That's just a great summer memory of New York City. That is I remember like, seeing Bill Clinton come to Rucker Park and watch the game. Oh, where? Yeah. Yeah. Was this before or after he called the Super Predators? That's probably when he had the Clinton, was the Clinton Initiative in Harlem? <laughs> right. Yes, this was back in 02. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I went to Riverbank once to watch the Amboy game. Oh, Riverbank, yeah, one. yeah. And I was like, it was a tough trip going up there because typically people don't go above like 42nd Street, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Too. Um, no, sorry, go ahead. No, I said there's a lot of things that are great about New York. I mean, it's not the same, but I think New York's never going to be staying the same. I think it evolves. We just want to make sure that it's a city that everyone can still afford to live in and still enjoy and have memories of their own. Yeah, I think that's the hard part. My parents were you know, city workers, like my mom worked for the post office, well, which is federal, and my father worked transit amongst other jobs. And it was just like, growing up, if you had a city job, you were like gold. If you were like sanitation, correction, anything else like that, you could literally put your family through, you know, Catholic school, private school, college, whatever, you know, because those jobs might've been paying like, I don't know, like 50, 60 out the gate. And then um, good benefits, too. So now, like, those same jobs is just, like, that might get you a studio <laughs> in, like, a decent part of town, right? Like, exactly. the, the middle class, I think, has really been changed in the city. But the weird thing for me is that um, a lot of the people I see replacing the brown middle class are dog-walking bartenders like people with two or three jobs and a roommate like why do you think that's a an adequate substitute for an entire class of people that built up this city the ground up and held like you know solid jobs and you know raised their kids and now all the dog walking bartenders are going back to the midwest so mm -hmm. that is like a huge um huge amount of vacancies in, in apartments and things like that so it'll be interesting to see how it all um, you know, shapes up over the next few years, but to pivot to a, a semi-serious topic, um, we spoke about Meg Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez's situation briefly last episode, episode 49, and now here we are, um, I think since then she's come forward and said that he shot her, and there's been this weird tension of people saying that black men brown men don't do enough to protect black women. And then you have people saying, well, Cardi and Megan talking about, you know, WAP, right? Like, and there's this tension between um, black women, brown women valuing themselves and how they view their value with respect to black men and how are black men valuing them. So just want to get your perspective on that too. You know, as somebody that's active in the community, do you feel like there's any merit to the statement that black men aren't doing enough to protect, you know, brown, black women? However broadly or narrowly you want to define that, do you think that there's any truth to the sentiment that, you know, 
men of color aren't protecting women of color? I wouldn't narrow it down to men of color. I'd say historically men in general have not done enough to listen to women, um, value what they say and believe them when they come forward, when they're talking about being assaulted or harmed. There's a reason why Meg actually said, I didn't wanna tell the cops right away because I was afraid if I said there's a gun in the car and being a black woman, who knows what they would have done if they would have come to the car. But I think we have to take it a step further. I mean, we still have income inequality between men and women. Um, whenever women say, I was assaulted, or I was harassed, et cetera, usually what you'll see on the internet is, oh, well, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Or how do we know if it's true? So women are constantly doubted or uh, shamed for coming forward that it doesn't surprise me that she wouldn't have come forward or seek to pr- pursue charges. Even so, I'll make it even simpler. And as a man, as men, we don't understand this, but I really try to put myself in the shoes of someone else. We can walk through the street at any time during the day and feel comfortable. Think if you're a woman, you don't have that luxury. You can't walk through New York City past 9 p.m. and not feel like you're going to be harassed, catcalled, or potentially harmed. Like there's a great freedom that we have as men where we could just walk around and do whatever. And women never have that freedom. Like sometimes I'll read posts and women will say, what would you do if there were no men for a day in your community? And it was sad. Like a lot of the responses were, walk through my neighborhood after 10 p.m. or just hang out with my friends at night or wear whatever I want to wear without feeling shamed or feeling like I'm going to get catcalled. So the very fact that women don't feel safe walking around alone and only feel safe if they're with their partner or their father or some male figure, that's an issue. And that goes beyond men of color. That goes, that's men in general. Um, I think that's what we need to get towards. Um, And I think the easiest way to think of it is like, if you're a guy, imagine you're walking through the street all the time. And every time you're walking through the street, someone that looks like the rock is (laughs) harassing you. (laughs) and people may think they're tough but if you have that constantly you're constantly feeling intimidated you're feeling unsafe in your neighborhood you're not going to want to go outside but then it also makes you feel suspicious of every man you encounter because you don't know what their intentions are um so i think you know domestic violence is horrible but the fact that women don't feel comfortable walking and existing in public spaces that's the bigger issue And that's what men have to do is better. Yeah, I think that is a good point about women not feeling comfortable in those sorts of spaces. And I think it's because maybe, I don't know, I think men sometimes identify the women in their lives. They feel they need to protect. It's like, oh, protect my mother, protect my sister, protect my wife, my daughter. But a general protection of women is not necessarily usually, I feel, appreciated amongst the majority of men. And I think maybe, and it also, like, I'll never forget when um, Nipsey Hussle died, 
and um, Kodak Black had said something about him or like about Lauren London, like, yeah, I'm gonna holler at her or something like that. And what what did he say? She a whole widow out here. She a whole widow out here. Oh Lord, right. But like all the guys rushing and was like, that's Nipsey's girl. You know, like, you know, it was not because of her being a woman that needed protection, but her status as belonging to another male. And I think sometimes men only respect other men or, you know, the women's relationship to the men they know. 100%. 100%. I mean, I mean, I just keep it very simple. Like, I don't know who's listening to the podcast, uh, young guys, just like, if you see a woman in the street, just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you have nothing to say. <laughs> it's very simple. Like, you, you wouldn't want to be harassed if you're walking down the street. You wouldn't want to walk through the middle of Alabama by yourself and get harassed by people that probably don't like black and brown people that don't look like them. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing if you're a woman. You just want to walk through the street and just not be bothered, just to be able be, be, to exist. And um, we have to teach men, especially when they're younger, you don't catcall, you don't, you just leave people alone. It's very simple. Like, I grew up in New York, you mind your business. <laughs> That's how we should be. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'll add to that is that I do think you, you should speak, but you should just say good morning or good evening, because sometimes just saying that and just keep walking so that she knows you're not expecting a whole conversation can actually make her feel safer. Like just acknowledging, you know, good morning queen or like something like that, I think is like, you know, not bad, but I always speak to older women and it's usually a, Oh, hi. But if I have like my family with me, they usually will be much more inclined to speak. If I'm by myself walking back from jogging or something like that, especially if it's dark, they looking like, oh my Lord, please. And I, I'm probably like the, the least harmful looking guy in all of New York City. So I can only imagine how they feel walking past a group of seven or eight toughs. Because I know in Midtown, when I'm walking around and I get cat, cat called or harassed by women, uh, it feels very uncomfortable. And I've been on the train and it felt the same thing. Like, women rubbing against me or like staring at me. So I implore everyone out there to treat women with respect because if yeah. you people like me, your brother, your podcast host may be harassed and we can't have that either. <laughs> but more importantly, more seriously, I do agree with that sentiment. I think that um, men feeling defensive about the thought that they're not protecting women is almost like, saying all lives matter. Like if someone says black lives matter and you say all lives matter, it's the same thing as you saying in response to people saying that black women don't feel protected. You saying, well, I don't feel protected. Right. So I think if you're doing your part, keep doing your part. But if you're not step it up, because at the end of the day, um, black women have always, as far as I've experienced, have always held down black men. I said it before in a podcast, the times when I got my ass beat by the cops, it was somebody random moms that walked by that was just like, leave my son. She ain't me for a hole in the wall. She could have been walking. It's four, four DTs, four plainclothes cops whipping my ass on the street. And she 
stop what she was doing to make sure I was okay. And it was mad toughs. All the all the tough guys was outside right there <laughs> doing nothing. Mm-hmm. It was a black woman, someone's mother, that saw her son and me and and stopped them from like whipping my ass. So I definitely <laughs> I'm all for protecting black women and it's not just because I have a daughter and sisters and a mom. It's more so because I like I think black women have always held me down. So at a minimum, I owe them that back. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think it's important to state, like, just citywide, like, in New, in New York City, NYPD responds to more than 230,000 domestic violence calls a year. So this is a huge systemic problem across all races. Um, and it shows that what we've been doing in raising men hasn't been effective because 230,000 cases a year, that's alarming. That should be a call to action. Right. And I think just to tie it up, I mean, Tory Lanez probably should not be in the United States right now. That's my opinion. I'm not an attorney, but I think we should send him back to Canada. Yeah, I don't know why people need more facts. There are no more facts that we need. They're, the facts are plain. He had a gun. She was shot. End of story. Like, allegedly, let's, allegedly, allegedly. Let's move on. Like, I mean, listen. If they deport him, we can still get his music, so it's all good, because he makes good music. So as long as we can still get his music, keep it going. But but on the, but yes, to tie it up, um, protect black women, and we'll keep saying that loudly, because it's, well, protect all women, but in particular right now, I do think our brown and black women are especially vulnerable, because their voices, it seems like, are silenced, you know, a lot more often than some of the others. So yeah, I sure. think that it's imperative that men of color protect their women, but all men should do the same as well. Um, so John, since we're already on a, on a semi-serious note, tell us about, you know, your platform and your vision for the Bronx and like why you're running for public office. Because as you pointed out earlier, you could get you a nice, cushy consulting job and just, like, not really be bothered with any of this kind of stuff, right? So what's driving your desire to run for public office and what's your vision for the Bronx once you're elected? Yeah, I'll start with a quick story. Whenever I speak to high school students in the Bronx, I usually ask them two questions. I ask them, who plans to graduate college and who, who plans to attend college and graduate and all the hands go up which is great that's what we want then the next question i ask them is who plans to return back to their neighborhood once they graduate from college and little to no hands go up changing that thought process is what drives me every day is why i'm running for office in the bronx i want to make this a neighborhood where people want to remain in and raise their families rather than escape or flee from it because they feel like They have to make it elsewhere. And certain platform things, you know, I'm not running for office based on a slogan or a hashtag. There's very specific things that we need in the Bronx and in the district to help. One, we had 16% unemployment pre-pandemic. Now we're at 30%. This is Great Depression levels of unemployment. So one, the city council gets discretionary funding. I want to invest the $500,000 I get every year in workforce development, the workforce development that addresses people that don't have a college degree. 
less than 12% of people have college degrees in the district. We need to train them so they can get jobs that they can work remotely rather than risk their lives, like the transit workers, nurses, et cetera. Two, when it comes to housing, everybody wants affordable housing, but we have exclusionary zoning practices that prevent affordable housing in rich areas like Riverdale, Soho, and Park Slope. We need more housing in the city. We have a low vacancy rate. People want to move here. There's not enough supply. We need to get rid of outdated rules that say, oh, well, we're a rich neighborhood like Soho. We're not going to have any affordable housing because black and brown people are only meant to shop here, serve as our nannies, and be tourists. No, every, every, part, every neighborhood in the city should have affordable housing. So I want to get rid of those outdated zoning rules. But also, on a smaller scale, we can expand the accessory dwelling unit program, which is pretty much basement apartments. Right now in New York City, there's a bunch of people living in basement apartments that are unsafe or not up to code. Well, if we expand that program to make it safe for people to live in basement apartments, it helps homeowners because they can get some extra income, but also it increases the supply of housing without having to do brand new construction. And then lastly, education's a big one, and a lot of that's controlled by the state. But one thing that the next mayor and the next city council should invest in is providing free internet or low cost internet throughout the city. We all know during the pandemic, if you don't have internet, it's really hard to function. Whether you're trying to go to school, get telehealth or work. Um, other cities around the world have invested in municipal broadband. New York needs to be the next city to do that. So that's, those are the, the three things that I'm running on. And, but the number one thing is we need to help Bronx residents get jobs and jobs that aren't minimum wage, jobs that don't require them to risk their lives, but jobs that pay well and that they can work remotely as well. That's a strong platform. Um, I wrote about the telecom issue back when I was in law school, and it was just like there's a ton of cities in the Midwest that are trying to model themselves after like Seoul and other places where if you have four or five options in this competition, like the benefit to that is that everyone gets better internet because you have options, right? And there's no competition because of the the old franchise laws and the fact that, you know, Cablevision or Optimum or whatever it's called now has this neighborhood and Verizon has that neighborhood and Time Warner has that neighborhood has kind of given them like many monopolies over different neighborhoods. And that's why I don't think the, the quality is what it could be, nor is the access is what it should be as well. So I definitely feel that one. Exactly. Like, think about it. Who likes their cable provider? Not me. My is going out today. <laughs> exactly. So imagine if we, if we as a city, we invested in a, in a network where you could have one gig connection, which is one of the fastest that you can get, for $20 a month versus these cable providers, which are providing cheap internet, a handful of channels at nearly five times the cost. Um, so, you know, that involves fiber, fiber networks, also mesh networks. But the fact that we don't have a low-cost internet option in New York City doesn't make sense because of the great need. Absolutely. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was the sentiment that, you know, people want to flee their neighborhoods. But that's not just a Bronx thing. Like, there's, that happens, you know, citywide. Harlem, you know, East New York, Brownsville, mm -hmm. a lot of people, you know, South Jamaica, Queens, like, folks want to get out. But I wanted to ask if you can pinpoint, you know, what's the drivers. I know that probably like the lack of employment opportunities is one of them, 
But I know one of the things about the Bronx in particular that I don't like isn't even the people, it's the police. Like there's a there's a thing called like a Bronx cop, right? And even now, like there's old documentaries from the 70s where they were in Fort Apache, which is like the 41st precinct. And they were just like riding around, just like, you know, grabbing people. And you fast forward to now, the 44th precinct, the 43rd precinct, the 46th precinct, the 47th, the 50th, like, there's so much to be said about how aggressive the police are in the Bronx. And it's not just the Bronx, because it happens in Brooklyn too. But I think the Bronx cop is like a real thing. So I just wanted to ask you, what do you think can be done once you're in office to improve that? Because I don't believe that a 12-year-old or 14-year-old kid needs to learn to respect the police as much as a grown man or woman that's a police officer needs to respect the neighborhood in which they work. So maybe it's, you know, making them actually live in the city and not on Long Island or Orange County. Or maybe it's a combination of, you know, just making it such that the young kid growing up in the Bronx doesn't have to grow up fearful of super aggressive encounters with the police. Well, this is a complex issue. Uh, and it's, it's all the rage right now. People have been complaining about police misconduct and police brutality since the police department was founded. Uh, there's very specific things that the city council can do, then there's other things that the state would have to do. One, one thing that the city council can do is, is adjust the NYPD's budget. The city has control over that. They can prevent future classes from being, future academy classes from being um, started, and we can decrease their budget. That's controversial to some, but I think we need to be investing in areas that have been underinvested in rather than investing in more guns on the street. When I'm saying guns on the street, I mean more officers. Second thing, which really gets to the larger point, which people don't want to touch because it causes cognitive dissonance, police officers are part of unions. And historically, the Democratic Party has been supportive of unions. But I think we're realizing that there are certain clauses in the police union contract which prohibit accountability or prohibit firing an officer that does something outright wrong or illegal. To your point, Khalil, Chicago has a residency requirement. Crime is still high. They still have police misconduct. So I don't think that solves it. I think the way you have reform is to change the union contract because everything that they're doing right now is allowed by the union contract. They're allowed to cause Eric Garner to die. They're allowed to murder Eric Garner and be on trial for two years and then get dismissed, even though you get paid for those past two years. That's written in the contract. And the state, through the Taylor Law, et cetera, they can amend that contract. Um, it will be probably the biggest political fight our state has ever seen, but that's what you need to do to really get to the root of the problem. Because right now, these police union contracts are allowing the lack of accountability to persist. Democrats don't like to say this, but because we're pro-union, but I think people are realizing that there's distinctions between unions and the police union even today, the sergeant's union today called a uh, soon-to-be Congress member and current council member 
a first rate whore today on their Twitter account. They released the arrest picture of the mayor's daughter. Any other city employee that did anything near that would be removed or at least disciplined. Mm -hmm. But because of the contract that they have, which protects them, they can act with immunity. And I think that's what needs to be changed. But we need our state elected officials to change that. Because the city council, yes, we can decrease their budget. But we can't force accountability unless the state acts, change their contracts, and passes more laws to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are some really good points. And it's interesting because I wanted to ask you your thoughts on, I guess, uh, people's awareness of their local elected officials because I I just feel like you just gave a lot of practical answers to a lot of things and problems that people complain about but I don't know if people are so aware that there are people like you with solutions or you know things that they should be more aware of and I, I noticed at least in my district I'm in Crown Heights the you know numbers you know that people are coming out for for local elections or they're just you know they have no idea who different people are during a primary vote you know how do you deal with that in terms of you know not being discouraged or you know trying to you know amongst your peers uh get more people involved on that level yeah so on a small scale at the community board we've been hosting monthly civics workshops where we talk about who local elected officials are, what money they get, what their powers are, et cetera. Um, I think it's easy for people to complain and say, oh, well, they don't vote. They don't pay attention to local races. But when was the last time the local elected officials reached out to the community versus waiting for people to come to their office and make their phone calls? And we can be very practical about how politics works. The way political campaigns work, the candidates look at who voted in the past three primary elections. And those are the people they target. So if 4,000 people vote in a council district, those 4,000 people are gonna be the people that are called, have their door knocked on, and get phone calls from. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's important that people vote in the local elections because when you vote consistently, then they start paying attention to you. Now, should elected officials pay attention to everyone that, that no no matter if they vote or not, yes. But when you have limited time, limited resources, and limited campaign funds, you have to target where your money is. Um, How do you get more people to be involved? I think if I'm elected, I'd be having these civics workshops every month, but also doing monthly town halls, and then also being very practical. City council member, you get $5 million in capital funding. That's for construction projects. How would you like to see that money be spent? What do you want to see change in your neighborhood? I get a half a million dollars for after-school programs. What after-school programs do you think are beneficial, et cetera? But also, taking it a step further, city council members need to be working with their Bronx delegations. So if there's something that I can't fund on my own, let me reach out to my neighboring council members so we can fund something for the Bronx. I think too often in politics, people are working in silos. I represent Crown Heights. I represent East New York. I'm gonna get everything from my neighborhood. But if we're thinking about New York City, we're interconnected city. What happens in your part of Brooklyn impacts this is part of Brooklyn. What happens in Brooklyn impacts the Bronx. So we need to be working together because we have limited funds right now. We're in the toughest budget crisis 
we've had in nearly 50 years. And the times of staying narrow with a focus on your district has to go because if the Bronx doesn't recover, that's going to impact Brooklyn. And if any of the boroughs don't recover, that's going to impact our city and our state. Mm -hmm. No, I did not know that there's all this kind of money at the disposal of city council. Like, granted, I vote every election, but I had no idea that there was this kind of money available. And they keep it, they do that on purpose. They don't want people to know that there's money because imagine if you're knocking on a door and you're a candidate and you do your typical pitch of, oh, vote for me. I want to have more affordable housing, X, Y, and Z. And usually people will ask a question or there. Now, versus if you knock on a door and the first thing someone asks you is, how are you going to spend the $5 million in capital money that you get? It's a very different conversation. It's a tougher conversation for the person to respond to because you have to show that you actually have plans and ideas for the neighborhood rather than slogans and hashtags. Exactly. And what's sad too is that a few years ago in in an election for Brownsville in Eastern New York, I want to say it was for state assembly. Okay. Um, I think that area, let's say the population is like 110,000. Mm-hmm. Like 5,000 people showed up to vote. 5,000. Like, the turnout was deplorable, and the incumbent won easily because the person that was going against them maybe had like 1,000 votes. But I'm like, you mean to tell me people can pack out basketball games and pack out block parties, but only 5,000 people vote in an election out of like 110,000? It was crazy to me. And then you couple that with the fact that the neighborhood is changing and the fact that there's these large budgets to be spent, to me it seems almost like plain English to say, hmm, if we care about our neighborhood, let's put our money behind a candidate that we rock with, that we can hold accountable and get next to, to see the things we want. If we want a new, a new park, or we want a statue of... Muhammad Ali or Shirley Chisholm was like, or we want more great school lunches. I just had some last week, actually. It was quite good. Don't what? go. You had school lunch? <laughs> Listen. That little round pe- pepperoni pizza? I took my son to the doctor and then I walked by my old school and it was open. And all like all schools right now have like free food. So I, I walked by, put my head in there and it was like empty and it was mad food. <laughs> adult breakfast, adult lunch. So I put my head in there, and the old lady was like, "Come on!" So I was like, "Okay." So <laughs> I walked in, and I grabbed like three. She was like, "That's all you want, yo?" She would not let me leave there without like nine uh, lunches and, and breakfasts because she was saying, "Yo, nobody's taking advantage of the program." And I remember as a kid, and people are not coming in and eating the food. Yo, the entire time I was there, I was there maybe like 10 minutes. Nobody came in there. And the irony is that that was more on your side of Crown Heights. My side of Crown Heights, where there's a lot more Jewish people, the school is packed. Like, there's a line to get the food. And over here, you know, it's all brownstones and stuff like that. But these people are lined up to get the free food. And I tell people all the time, the issue partially in our community is that people got more pride than money. Like, growing up, there were summers where if I didn't eat that free school lunch, I wasn't eating, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I got older and I said, I'm never eating that. But now I'm like, you know what? My tax money's paying for this. Right. Why not get it's it? Get free lunch. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think I would add, I don't want to cast blame on the single parent working three jobs that's just trying to make ends meet. I think what New York can do to increase voter turnout, I mean, New York claims to be so progressive, but we don't even have mail-in voting. We don't even have election day as a holiday. We just implemented early voting a year ago. So first off, it's difficult to vote. We don't even have same day registration. So if you're not registered by a certain time, you can't vote in an election. So I think if you wanna increase voter turnout, you can do what Washington's doing where they have all mail-in ballot. So literally hardly anyone goes to the actual ballot box. They just mail in their voting, they mail in their ballot and they vote. And they have one of the highest voter turnouts in the country. So there's things that New York can do to make it easier for people to vote. But if you're working three jobs, you're working the night shift, how are you gonna get off two hours to vote? And if you can only do early voting two weeks in advance, how, can you, how are you gonna vote? So we need to make it more, we have to make it easier for people to vote as well. I think that will help as well to have increased turnout. We gotta make it easier. Mm-hmm. Is that Washington State or Washington DC? Washington State. Nice. So it's funny you mention that because I changed parties. I'm part of the Working Families Party. Mm-hmm. And- when I changed it and I went to vote, they couldn't find my name. And it was just like, at the <laughs> at the voting place, nothing against the elderly. I have several <laughs> and uncles, but the people working at the place were not it. But the, the poll site manager, she knows us because we come every election. So she saw me and she was like, what's up? And I'm like, they can't find me. So she was like, okay, I see you, but the issue is, you know, this. Basically, um, you get your form and, like, you're in the system, but because you change parties, it's, it's showing weird. And the software will only put you in, like, one or two buckets. It's like, are you a Democrat in this thing? If not, or if yes, okay, here, vote now. If not, you got to do, like, um, an affidavit ballot and that kind of stuff. But the old person didn't know about the affidavit ballot. So he was telling me, well, you're not in the system. That's what I could do. So I started to like get mad. I'm like, yo, like, go talk, like, where's your boss at basically? I was like, yo, where's your boss respectfully? Like, I don't want to talk to you. I'm gonna talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. Yeah, and- that's the issue with the board of elections. Um, the board of elections is run by the county parties as a political process. We need to have a professional Um, Board of Elections, where people aren't chosen by patronage. And we shouldn't have, um, we shouldn't have that situation. We should have professionals that are trained, that know the law, etc. But the current political system we're in, all the boroughs appoint who they want to the Board of Elections. And it's designed this way. It's it's designed to be difficult to vote. This is intentional. Like, the thing about it is that I've realized a lot of the things that you have to do in the city, whether it be go get food stamps, register your kid for school, uh, vote, anything that you need to do civically, go into the DMV. All of those things are like anxiety-provoking, aggravating experiences. And to your point, I used to think that, okay, the people in the DMV are, are miserable, but then it's like, should even go into like, fill out a form at the police station. Like, 
so many things that you would want to do just like as like a basic exercise of your rights as a citizen, you're made to feel like you're a nuisance. So yeah. in that instance of like going to vote, like there was a one, I think the, the workers were all a bit older and they could barely operate the iPads. It was just like a lot going on and I felt bad because I don't want to be like the asshole, you know, 80s baby saying like, yo, what the fuck is wrong with you, old man? Like, so like I want to keep my calm, but I'm like, yo, this shit is frustrating. Like, I got shit to do. I'm trying to vote. And you and you sitting there trying to like squint your eyes with your glasses to figure out the iPad. I'm like, yo, come on, who got time for this shit? Right? Yeah. Imagine if you could just get a package in the mail, you fill it out and you throw it right back in the post office box. That's how easy it can be. Mm-hmm. And we need our state elected officials to change the law. That'd be great. Because the other thing, too, is outside of the polling places, there were people almost trying to steer people, hey, I'm not campaigning, but, you know, like, almost trying to steer you. And I'm just like, this doesn't feel right. Yeah, it's definitely illegal. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. Um, so, no, I think that platform is one that definitely makes sense. And I do think that um, the education of people in terms of civic engagement is something that's like so understated. And I think it's sad that I didn't really start voting until I was like a grown man, because as a kid, I think my parents may have voted in like, like the mayor, I think they voted for, uh, for Dinkins. And I think they may have voted for Fernando Ferrer. Yes. And then they probably voted for, 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 uh, for Clinton for Senate. And I remember telling my moms, Vote Rick Lazio because Rick Lazio cares, and Hillary Clinton is only, only using this to get to be president one day. And I wasn't lying because that's exactly what she's trying to do. But um, you know, people, you know, using and not really caring. The homie is Jazzy pointed out that we have a new Rachel Dozel, a new Black Fisher. Yes. Unfortunately, there's a young lady in the news because she, um, although being born in, or I don't know, grown up in Kansas, uh, a woman of Jewish heritage, has been claiming to be an Afro-Latina going by the name Jess La Bombalera. (laughs) And I am just in shock like 2020 continues to just be shocking so not only was she assuming the identity of a a a bronx um a black bronx puerto rican uh identity she was uh the receiver of many like grants and scholarships related to her being you know a black woman or latina woman studying African studies. And she is or is well currently employed by George Washington University as a professor in the history department teaching African American studies. And it's just I you know, I I'm amazed that just no one checked her. Like how did this happen? How did she get into the culture? And how does this continue to happen? It's just, there's just so many questions, so many thoughts. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I was wowed when I saw her terrible attempt at 
uh, salsa dancing. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, like everybody wants to be black, but don't nobody want to be black, right? Like, and I say black to include, you know, Afro-Latina, Afro-Latino, like I use that term one and the same, but I think everybody wants to be able to like, you know, dance merengue and eat mangu and do the cool fun shit, but don't nobody want to like get stopped and frisked and, <laughs> and have like a harder time, like navigating corporate America or like, I say all the time, like being brown or black is, is dangerous, but it's kind of, it's, it's, it's fun at the same time. Right. <laughs> but I think that, you know, the fact that um, there's resources that people like that take advantage of and like it, I always get very annoyed with a lot of diversity conversations generally because I think that diversity is a a very misused term, right? And I think there's diversity of background, there's diversity of, like for me, just because somebody is black doesn't mean that they necessarily need a scholarship because you could have grown up in Riverdale and your right. parents would be like, you know, doctors or lawyers and you have no debt and your life is laid out for you, Right as opposed to somebody growing up um, white on Finley Avenue in 170th Street and having nothing, right? Like that person would probably need the scholarship more so than that person of black privilege, right? And I'm not saying that, um, you know, black privilege isn't something that should be appreciated because I'm, I'm trying to work to make sure my kids have the ability to look for jobs through the phone. If they want to be politicians, they're going to call, hey, Uncle John, I'm going to intern with you this summer, okay? Like, that's going to be their job interview, right? So I get that part of it, but the diversity conversation, which I'm not going to get into right now, can always be very, like, misconstrued and very sloppy. But when I see people like this benefiting from opportunities that are made for our people, it's infuriating because... You take anything we do creatively, whether it's dance, whether it's cook, and our own culture is sold back to us with a tax, right? Like, they've even gone so far as to say that, like, our dances, in most cases, can't be copyrighted. Why can't a ballet dance be copyrighted, but not the Millie Rock? Right. And it's all because of a very ethnocentric approach to how they treat the Lord with respect to us. They don't want us our content to have legal protection so they minimize it so that Fortnite and everyone else can kind of jump in and pull from our culture right. without having to pay for it, right? And I think this is like another example of somebody kind of coming in and benefiting and the danger there is that I think there's always going to be like allyship in the struggle and in the cause, but we can never rely on that and I don't think people should be comfortable enough to feel like, well, they can co-opt the black experience. She did say to cancel her. She said, cancel me. And She's only doing that because she was going to be outed by someone that found her out. And so when she realized that she decided to come forward and, but you made like, you know, like you made good points because I just feel like, like this could have been the Kardashians easily, except that the Kardashians are in the limelight and we know what they looked like 10 years ago. Right. The Kardashians are also freeing a lot of people. They get a lot of people out of prison. 
I'm glad they are. I'm glad that they are doing their part. I'm never going to stop somebody from helping to free another oppressed person. But you have to acknowledge the fact that they take from a culture to benefit themselves and then don't do anything outside of Kim Kardashian free anybody. Did not do anything to they were taking. Courtney Kardashian had a black assistant, and okay, all right, right. They, they're little besties, they're little tag alongs, right? They pull one person up with them. Lips, but butts, that's okay. Listen, you can buy any body part they want to. Listen, it's okay. I just think that it's just the the the, the audacity of whiteness to feel that, like, because people are just coming out with like anecdotal things about like things that she did as a teacher one of her students was like yeah i remember her putting putting up a picture of a another white author that had gotten something um over her and she basically was like look at white people taking away opportunities from us from black and brown people you know what i mean so she was like indignant in her identity and and then chastising others for not being black and it's just it's just wild like it's just i mean clearly she has some sort of mental health problems but also white privilege allowed her to think that she could get away with that i think it was wild this last thing i say before you know john jumps in i, I think it was wild that she was actually doing press arguing with like Corey Johnson and people at like at like New York one about like you took over my neighborhood and you sold my neighborhood to the developers. <laughs> I'm just like what? Eldario. So what? her accent was horrible. Yeah, man. I'm like, whoa, whoa, slow your roll, Nacho Libre. Like, what you mean? Like, this is not your neighborhood. Like, I don't it's, know. It's sick. The only thing I'll add to this, um, I agree what she did was wrong, but I also think it speaks to this notion that to be authentically Black or authentically Latino, you have to be from a tough neighborhood, grow up poor, and then you can identify with the struggle when yeah. the Black and Latino experience is diverse. We are not all poor. In fact, most of us are not poor. Uh, we are not all from neighborhoods that have high crime. Um, our experiences are diverse. And I think it was offensive that she portrayed a caricature of what a Afro-Latina would be mm -hmm. to gain acceptance or credibility. Mm -hmm. um, I think that was the most offensive thing to me. Mm -hmm. I'm voting for him right now. I'm voting for him right now because that was just like... Very all. <laughs> You know, they never they're never like third or fourth generation college graduates. It's always um, you know, like and it just it it's crazy to me like why how did no one like ask her like oh so like where are your people from? Like, okay, like you from the Bronx, like all right, you love how's your how's your beans and rice? Like I like 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 I like why was nobody like trying to uh, like make sure she was who she says she was, like I don't know. Yo, and that's another thing with us as a people sometimes that bothers me. I think sometimes we're too accepting. Like, even, like, 
if right now somebody's walking through my neighborhood that well now it's different right but it's it's different now but growing up i remember the first time i seen a transplant in my neighborhood i was on a decent block my block wasn't even crazy like that but the block i lived off of was kind of crazy and i remember this man walked up to us it was me and like two or three guys and he was like hey guys um how's it going man it's like a liquor store around here. And he's, he was so comfortable, like, just asking us that. And we was like, you know what? If he's that comfortable to ask that, we'll tell him. It was like, yeah, it's one, you know, right around the corner. But I thought to myself recently, how easy is it for us to go to a neighborhood of people in New York? Like, we can go right to, you know, Westchester, right to Long Island. We can go to Levittown. We can pick any neighborhood, right? That's... uh. What do you call it? It's called the, damn, what's the term for it? Like, there's towns where after dark, you don't want to be caught there if you're a person of color, right? So why is it that those towns can hold fast to those identities? And there's actually a list that came out recently because in the 40s, they used to publish a book every year about how to travel through the South while Black. And it said, okay, Right. Go to this hotel. Uh, go to this restaurant. Like, that was all laid out. And they would list towns that you did not want to be caught in at night. And there's a list of towns in New York, like Mexico, New York, and there's mad, you know, Levittown, places where after dark you don't want to be caught because it can, like Amherst, because it can end, like, really badly for you. But why is it that our neighborhoods are, like, the experimental feeding grounds for people to just come in and do what they want whenever they want. I'm not saying that we should just have like people walking around saying, Hey, you don't belong, get out or shoot you. It's more so like, um, I think more and more strongly now that we need to have a stronger sense of community. And we do have that in some places, but extending it further, bringing back more tenant patrols, more neighborhood watches and saying like, um, our neighborhoods aren't going to be the ones that you can use to, you know, move into dog walking bartenders, right? Like take that somewhere else because this is a neighborhood of people that, you know, are gainfully employed and we care about our community. So it's not open to all, like you can't just come here and have three or four side jobs and, you know, move in with a yoga mat and think that now, this is the new norm, right? Um, so it's something I've been I've been grappling with because on the one hand, I do feel like we're very much more likely to. I even drove past the church the other day and I saw a line for a soup kitchen, and it was more transplants on the line than it was like poor black people. And I was just, I'm like like whoa like what is happening? But I I strongly doubt that poor black people can go to Levittown and get on the soup kitchen line and have the same outcome. So I think that's an excellent point, Cleo. I mean, it's <laughs> an excellent point, p and <laughs> um, I So I actually think of it a little bit differently. Um, I think to your point, communities of color have always been accepting of others. I think that's the New York City story. But why are there parts of Long Island and Staten Island 
that don't have black and Latino people living there. And it, this is intentional. Exactly. And I'm going to give like a policy primer, like background on policy. So there are certain parts of our state that are zoned, which only permit single family home homes, which means you can't build two stories, three stories there. They're in areas of Staten Island and Long Island, even areas near the train, the zoning only prefer, permits single family homes. So as a result, you're limiting the amount of people that can live there. And if we're talking about income, well, if you're limiting affordable housing from being built there, then you're ultimately excluding black and brown people from living in these communities. And this is something that the state can change, but because of wealthy homeowners and their interests, and unfortunately there are still some people in Long Island that are racist that don't wanna live near black people, the zoning persists. But if we really want to be an inclusive state, we need to change those outdated rules and allow affordable housing in Long Island near the LIRR stops. And this is an issue throughout the country. There are certain states and towns which only permit single family homes and they want to prevent more housing from being built. They don't want to live near low income people. This is a government policy that could change tomorrow if we had elected officials with courage to say, you know what? There should be affordable housing in Long Island. There should be affordable housing in Staten Island. We only have so much space, we might as well build there. They shouldn't get their private enclaves in New York City. This is a city of immigrants. Everyone has the right to live wherever they want to. We can't have these essentially gated communities in our state, which prevent people from living there. So that's a large reason why parts of Long Island and Staten Island aren't diverse, because local officials approve zoning that had these discriminatory uh, effects. And no, no, just w w one thing I, I want to say before I forget that is on that same point, a friend of mine went to a community board meeting in Flatbush and one in Midwood, which are two neighborhoods next to each other. Yes. Midwood zoned down. So they dropped down like a zoning tier to yes. make sure that to your same point, it was uh, more single family homes and they could maintain the neighborhood look. But in Flatbush, the black neighborhood, they zoned up to like R6. And they basically wanted to keep their neighborhood the same look and feel while being able to then come into Flatbush and build up. And, exactly. And basically tear down Victorian homes and all of these like really nice looking homes in what were upper middle class blocks in favor of cookie cutter development buildings. And my friend went to both meetings. I'm like, well, why'd you go to both? He was like, because I kept seeing people at these meetings that I know didn't live in the neighborhood. So I went to their meeting and when I showed up, they looked surprised and they tried to vote on certain things as quickly as possible before I could get settled in. So this stuff is done like blatantly, like they're not hiding it. It's just a matter of, are you savvy enough to like get involved and like, put your foot down. And he basically said in terms of his zoning, he couldn't stop it, but he made them vote on something else concurrently. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to R6 us, then this other thing that you were trying to table got to go through now. And I think it was something along the lines of um, going down from R6 to like R4 and like making sure that they couldn't build as high. It's like, okay, if you're going to vote them 
to drop down, then we want to drop down too. Because it's the same meeting happening about 10 blocks apart. Yeah. So if it's roughly the same people floating in and out of the meetings, if they can drop down, why can't we? Like, yeah. so it I was, think, it was sick. Yeah. And I think it's important to, for people to know, like if people are like, what does the city council do? The number one thing the city council can do is regulate zoning. So we can determine what can be built on a piece of land or what cannot be built in a piece of land. So we can determine how your neighborhood looks. So I'd say if there's one takeaway about what does the city council do, well, we can define what gets built in your neighborhood or doesn't get built. And we design those rules. And if you care about how your neighborhood looks, you need to know who your city council member is. I know, I know we're, 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 we're long on time, but I was looking at your platform and I noticed that you are not in support of, or you can explain your stance on Rikers and the building of local jails in neighborhoods. So could you, cause I'm just curious um, what your thoughts are on that. And for those that don't know, Rikers Island they would have you think it's in Queens, but it's actually a Bronx zip code. Yes, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's a great question. And actually, uh, a journalist asked me the same question. Uh, a, a, a journalist for, uh, you could say, conservative outlet. And they asked me the same question. There's so, conservatives so, in the Bronx? No, this was a citywide uh, publication. So simply put, the city council passed a, they passed a law, they passed a, a Euler back action, which would tear down Rikers and build four new jails throughout the city. I think we can agree that Rikers Island needs to be closed. There's issues with um, the people in there being harmed. There's a culture of corruption there. My issue is that the estimated cost to build these four jails is $10 billion. And I can never approve a budget that would invest $10 billion in four new jails instead of new schools, workforce development centers, uh, public transportation, et cetera. So then the question is, okay, what do you do with Rikers? So it's a complex issue. You can close Rikers and still get the, the jail population down but it's not going to be easy. So the state has bail reform that will help get the jail population down, but we have to deal with an inherent tension, which is some of the people, a good portion of the people on Rikers are charged with violent crimes. And we have to reckon with how do we deal with people accused of violent crimes? Should they be in jail or can there be alternatives to this? And this is a challenge especially in the Black and Latino community, for decades. James Foreman Jr. writes about this in Locking Up Our Own. A lot of the pro-drug um, enforcement laws, street strikes, et cetera, were actually pushed by Black and Brown communities because they didn't want to see drugs in their community and they didn't want to see violence in their community, especially with the high crime in the 80s and 90s. But if we're really talking about alternatives to incarceration, we need to deal with violent crimes. Not everyone in Rikers is dealing with drug crimes. I think we agree that low-level drug crimes, they probably shouldn't be in jail. Mm -hmm. The challenge that we have as a society is, what do we do with the person that's accused of stabbing someone or shooting someone? 
do we want them to stay in jail? Maybe people have a consensus. They say, you know what? Those people should be in jail. Or do we have an alternative? But it's not going to be overnight to bring the jail population down to have facilities that can contain all the people that were at Rikers. Realistically, we're talking about a 10-year process. Um, so let's say the city council, you know, I'm one of 51 members and I get outvoted by my colleagues. Okay, if we're going to build the four new jails, we can't spend $10 billion on it. We need to get that cost down. We need to have procurement reform. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it upsets the unions. We cannot spend $10 billion on constructing four new jails. Mm -hmm. And that's my main stance on it. Mm -hmm. I may be outvoted and they want the four jails to go through, mm -hmm. but we can't spend $10 billion on it, especially with all the budget deficits we're facing right now. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy answer, though. It's not. It's not. And that's why I was curious to, to think about your thoughts, because I mean, I, you know, clearly, you know, I, I, again, I'm a former public defender. I'm quite familiar with the, the, the ins and outs of Rikers and the issues that they face. The, the, the $10 billion, the billion of that needs to be spent on retraining and giving the resources to the, offer, the corrections officers that they need because they're so understaffed. And they also are in decrepit cells that don't close. Like, I don't, I, you know, I feel for them in their jobs being, you know, with these people. And then also going back to the same communities as, as the people yeah. that they're forced to police and not, you know, and not being supported in the way that they probably should. And I know that many neighborhoods and many boroughs are not even open to having a jail in their borough because we're just not accustomed to that. And I think um, people don't, you know, they think about violent offenders and sex offenders no. being near their families and nobody really wants that, you know? Um, but I definitely think that, you know, uh, uh, I guess structurally and, and property wise, there needs to be a rehaul of uh, Rikers and, um, I don't know. I, I, I do think it isn't the, the there needs to be new facilities. I'm not sure if they need to be in each borough. Yeah, That's maybe an honest, you know, I guess taxpayer uh, perspective on that. And, and I think, I mean, the city council already passed, voted on this. The issue now is where do we get the $10 billion from? Because we have no money right now in New York City. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the next council is going to have to figure out you know, if this, if the ticket price, if the, if the sticker price is $10 billion, do we really want to commit to spending $10 billion on four new jails? Because $10 billion is probably the floor. Most city projects go above budget. So when we're talking 10 billion, we're probably talking a 12, 15 billion. We have public housing that has needs. We have education that has needs. If I have to pick between spending 10 billion on some jails or 10 billion on other things, I'm going to go with the other things. So I'm not going to vote for a budget that invests $10 billion on jails. Mm -hmm. I just can't. My, my conscience won't let me. That's real. That's real. Um, all right. So, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was very informative. Um, new music. Um, I found a song from a Brooklyn artist named Young Lido. Uh, formerly part of Troy Ave's team. He has a new song called uh, Bishop. Here's that. 
I thought we was cool. Found out he was the bishop in the crew. We went half on food. Even went to the same school on a basketball court. We shared the same shoes. I thought we was cool. I thought we was cool. Found out he was the bishop in the crew. Even went to the funeral. Hugged my baby mom and my mama too. Out of everybody, it was you. I thought we was. Thought you was my brother. Used to call my mom's mother. Ironically, she used to always tell me that she don't. Um, this week, I am listening to Jasmine Sullivan's new song, Lost One. And here's that. Steer me out before you let it go. There is one thing I need for you to know. Just don't have too much fun without me. Don't have too much, don't have too much fun. Please don't forget about me. Try not to love no one. Try not to love no one. Yeah. This week, I discovered a new group. They're called um, Van Jess. They're two Nigerian sisters. And the song is called Come Over. And there's that. So check out Olo's music selections on your favorite platform. Make sure you check us out at www.serbros.com for, you know, more articles. We have a new newsletter coming soon. The merch is being sold at www.serbros.com forward slash shop. You can get our dad hats, our entangled shirts. John, we appreciate you pulling up. Give them all your information. Let them know where they can donate, when they can vote. Oh, John. Yes. Oh yes, vote yes, vote, <laughs> vote John. John Sanchez, more important, most importantly. Yeah, yeah. So the website is uh, John Sanchez for NY.com. Um, Instagram, John Sanchez NY, Twitter, NY John Sanchez. And um, we want everyone to donate. And the good thing is that if you're a New York City resident, your donations get matched eight to one. So if you give a hundred dollars, the city chips in eight hundred. And it's important that we have people donate to the campaign because we need people with specific plans and goals for the neighborhood. And I can't do it without the support of New Yorkers all around the city. And when is the election? It's going to be a special election. So we're talking March, March 2021. Nice. Okay, good, good. So for all you folks in the city, you heard that you don't have to give 800 to give 800. You give 100 and that turns into 800. So... If you get 50, that's 400. That's right. Look at you and your maps. I know. (laughs) Like, eight to one donation. So the same money that you would put towards a bottle of Azul or your favorite high-priced liquor, get this man some money, man. Right. Change your neighborhood. Change Change now. Get some money, man. Make the Bronx great again. The Bronx has always been great. We're just going to make it greater. 
Make the Bronx greater. <laughs> um, John, it was a pleasure having you up here. Um, I definitely learned a lot about, you know, city council. And um, it was a very entertaining dialogue. So appreciate you taking time out to uh, chat with us. Um, any final thoughts for the folks them listening? I just want to say that, yes, this presidential election is important, but next year is probably most important for the next decade of New York City. We're going to be electing new borough presidents, a new mayor, and 35 new city council members. Mm. So if, you're, if, you ha if you care about the future of New York City for the next 10 years, we really need you to pay attention to the elections in 2021 for the future of our city. Mm. That's dope. E-Money, any words for this week? What he said, no. It's Labor Day. We have a different Labor Day coming up. This Labor. This is going to come out, what, Labor Day Monday? Yeah. And we will not be on the parkway. We will be virtually attending. Um, although I heard there's lots of secret parties and sex going on. I won't be there but they're happening. Um, well, I'm excited because this is the first quiet Labor Day I'll have in quite some time. <laughs> there won't be any shootings at Juvet. There won't be any loud parades and overpriced beef patties when we used to park with. Oh, I'm yes. excited. But... Well, enjoy it while you can. On a, on a serious note, there's an epidemic plaguing our city right now. It's hard to find a pumpkin spice latte and we need help to keep pumpkin spice lattes on menus. They closed the Starbucks near my neighborhood. Oh, really? Yeah. Starbucks are closing? Well, one on Flatbush. Um, they also temporarily closed the one in Midtown by my office. So I have not had a, a Starbucks pumpkin spice latte or Pret oatmeal latte in quite some time. And I'm suffering. So pray for me. I'm not well. I'll do my best to hold on. I have some pumpkin spice in my house I'm using with um, a home brewer for coffee, but I'm not doing well without my, my latte. I'm going to change my name from Patagonia Lattes to just Patagonia and, and water if I can't get these lattes anytime soon. So pray for me. I'm not well, but I'm hanging in there. And on that note, over and out. No matter where we face, we must face the moment of truth, baby.